0: and listen right through to the end of the episode where she shares resources, because not only does she share some resources in the episode itself, but sent me a voice memo afterwards with some additional ones. So there's some gold in there. Radio on with the show. Hi, folks. Three quick announcements before we start the show today. This is part two of the recent Take On Board event with Morgana Ryan. So if you haven't listened to part one yet, hit pause and go back and listen to that first. Today, we go through all of the excellent questions that came up at the event. But note, because it was recorded at a live event, some of the audio is, well, not quite as great as I would like. Bear with it. The content is fantastic. Secondly, it's the Take On Board birthday month. So come and celebrate at our party on the 1st of July. Links in the show notes. And If I could ask, you can help us celebrate by rating or reviewing or sharing the Take On Board podcast. Shout out to Mariana O'Gorman for her review of the pod and to Jan Boynton for emailing me to let me know that she's shared the pod. Thank you. It totally makes my day when I hear these things. Last but not least, I have just announced the 2021 dates for my board Kickstarter program. So, if you are inspired to join a board after listening to all these stories on the pod... This is the programme for you. The programme starts in August and super early bird discounts apply until the 18th of July. But don't wait too long as the programs fill quickly. Link in the show notes. Okay, enough from me. On with the show. Hello and welcome to the Take on Board Podcast, where we talk all things boards and governance. I'm your host, Halja Svensson. Being on a board can be interesting, valuable and exciting, yet it can also be really lonely, challenging and hard. So here at Take On Board, we'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you build your governance wisdom. We'll shine a light on how to navigate your way onto your first board or to build your board portfolio. We'll also help you to work through those challenges that keep you awake at night. Each week, I'll talk to women who have been there, done that, and together we'll discover what we need to take on board to be your best in the boardroom. So, folks, last week on the Take On Board podcast, you heard from Morgana Ryan about developing strategy at one of our special Take On Board events. There were so many questions, we didn't get to go through all of them at the event, so Morgana has very kindly given us some additional time to answer some of those questions. We're going to do them in a bit of a quick-fire fashion so we can get through all of them. So, thank you to those that came and asked some of those questions. And Morgana, hello and welcome back. Thank you for being here and taking the time to answer some of these questions.
1: Thanks, Helen. lovely to be back again.
0: Okay, so let's go through... Jane Bogue asks, what happens if the chair, and therefore the tone, isn't strategic, or if the chair doesn't value true future thinking? Morgana, what are your thoughts there?
1: It's a it's a tough one, huh? Particularly when it's the chair. It probably depends. If you're a fellow board member, then initially starting with a one on one chair to give the chair that you can sway them. If that doesn't work, I'd consider talking to some of my fellow board members to see what their view is and to see whether collectively you can list the tone of the conversation. There's potentially an opportunity to suggest setting up a strategy committee or a strategy working group and, and volunteering to leaders. it. If you're the CEO and you have this frustration, I think um, particularly if you're a strategic CEO, I tackle it from the way I wrote the board papers and the way I framed the board papers to the board, trying to pose some of those strategic questions. But I do think there's also something around trying to to raise awareness of the risk of not having those hard strategic conversations and helping the board chair to just open their thinking a little bit to you know the opportunity cost of not looking to the future, even when you don't know the answers. It's a bit like scenario planning. When you scenario plan, the chances that the actual scenarios you considered play out happen almost negligible. But the fact that as an organisation, you've gone through that process means you've started to flex the muscles, thinking in a different way and lifting the thinking to
0: a different level. And that's quite powerful. Yeah, great, great suggestions. It's really an influencing piece, isn't it? So trying to influence the chair around that. I think the only other thing I would add to that is sometimes a board evaluation might bring some of these things to light as well. So it would be unusual for a board evaluation not to to have some questions about how the board deals with strategy, so that might also be a way of bringing it to light. Fabulous. Thank you. Next questions from Fiona, and she asks, can you change the strategy along the way when the environment or needs change? Morgana, what are your thoughts there? Yes. You can,
1: and and you should, insofar as the the strategy is at a point in time and it's looking at the very high-level direction that the organisation is travelling. And it should give you kind of goals and direction in line with your vision and your mission. If something comes on the horizon that you didn't foresee at the time when you had your strategy conversation, but that it absolutely aligns with your vision and your mission and your direction, you should jump on it. But you need to recalibrate. And that's where the strategic business planning piece comes in, okay? Because you have a number of strategic change initiatives that the organization is probably in flight with. And you need to think about how you bring this new opportunity into the mix and possibly have to deprioritise something else to fit it in and give it the space it needs. And I think as board members, you also need to think about how you help the CEO find the headspace to really see new opportunities and not get so bogged down in the business as usual.
0: Jenny Selway asks... How do organisational structures and strategic frameworks differ between major multinational corporations and international NGOs? Do the two sectors learn from one another? Morgana, what, given you've worked in both, what are your insights there?
1: People are people. So there's a, there's a definite common factor around people's behaviours and particularly when you have to have hard conversations about difficult big strategic questions and about prioritisation. So there are definitely overlaps and similarities in that respect. But the culture in which they operate can also drive differences too. At the end of the day, it's often about power and control and the extent to which your organisational environment and structure enables a fair degree of control and power in the way that a strategy is set and rolled out across an organisation versus a more consensus driven organisation where you have to consult much more widely. I would say in international NGOs, you have a huge amount of complexity where you have international secretariat so you think of Oxfam it's a global brand but fundamentally you've got a, a small secretariat and then you have there might be up to 20 affiliates now so you know Oxfam UK Oxfam America Oxfam Australia each of those have their own local boards, their own local strategy then you have the country offices in which they program as well so just thinking about how you do something at a global level that resonates with those other levels is, is challenging whereas Oil and gas, which is my other big area of experience in upstream oil and gas, you know, an organisation like Shell or something, they have a lot of control, but there are certain countries in which they're in joint venture. Even if they're a majority share, it's often, you know, 51% majority share, and there are a lot of different cultural nuances in that culture country context, uh, that can be quite challenging. So it's never straightforward, and it's really important for each organisation that you understand the differences. But having said that, there's no question, you know, James and I wrote a chapter on strategy for international NGOs. We were heavily influenced by what we've seen in the commercial sector, and we then took the basic bones of that um, and then overlaid it with our insights and our experience from development to create something that was tailored to that sector and I do think going the other way with the focus on sustainable development goals, ESG, climate, et cetera, there's a lot more opportunity for businesses to bring in some of the for-purpose experience and thinking as they go through their strategy processes so they can start to think about how you can do what I would call sort of business and development or beyond CSR but you actually start to just deliver your your core business in a way that has a positive social impact.
0: Absolutely. You know, if I reflect about governance, you know, and some of the Royal Commissions that we've had in Australia, the Financial Services Royal Commission and so on, you know, the for-profit versus for-purpose sector have a lot to learn from each other. Okay, Carla Coombs asks, how do we recognise the lessons of the past without seeming negative? How much time do you give to this step? Yeah, it's
1: a very good question. I think it depends on, <laughs> it depends on the size of your organisation and the amount of resources you have to some degree, mm. as to how much you can afford to spend on it. I definitely think it's worthwhile for whoever is designing the strategy pro- process to reflect back for a couple of reasons. One, you can really take the bits that have worked well and think about how you amplify them this time around and also the bits that were less successful and how you avoid them. But there's also something around stakeholders. You know, People will often talk about the bits that were not great the last time round, mm. So you want to be yes. aware of that context and that history so that when you present the, new, the current approach, you can kind of circumvent some of those negative comments by saying, oh, and we've factored in this from before and this is how we're dealing with it this time. So you can basically take the negative and make it a positive by showing that you're proactively on the front foot and you've done something different this time. But as I said at the outside, with strategy, the process and the actual strategic plan that comes out of it, you cannot please all the people all the time and you shouldn't try. So you have to Mm. accept that there will always be some dissenting voices decisioning either both the process or
0: or what comes out of it. Jenny Selway asks, can you speak a little on the role or tips for influencing in strategy implementation, particularly in joint ventures, which I think you mentioned before? Can metrics be used to track?
1: Metrics should absolutely be used to track. The piece I didn't talk about in my, my presentation is also business cases. So really, if you're embarking on a significant change program to implement the strategy, you really want to think about using business cases to, to put together the quantitative and qualitative case for change. So through the exercise of preparing those business cases, you then have a much better detailed understanding of both the strategic, the financial, the risk, and the timing and complexity to, to implement those changes. So, and that's also then documents that, depending on the level of detail, can, can be reviewed by the board as well, so they've got visibility, particularly for really large commitments. So I would say it's recalibrating your standard reporting, so it's showing the right information for judging how the new strategy is being implemented. It's using your strategic business planning as a sort of an annual process, but with probably a minimum quarterly review and reset points. It's having a business cases to support those strategic change initiatives before you kick them into implementation. And I think where there's joint ventures involved, it's really about that stakeholder management piece. depends a lot on the relationships you have. Um, I worked a lot in the Middle East, a bit in Nigeria, a bit in Europe with various combinations, and it varies widely depending on the local context the local
0: leadership for local stakeholders. Here's a doozy for you, Morgana. Karen Percy asks, how do you make the case for diversity when the older white men resist and drag out the merit argument. I need some strategies to push back. Can you give Karen some strategies? Very good question. I want to reflect back on the fact that
1: academically women do as well or better than men at school. So when you bring out the merit argument, there's a reason things are different in business and I don't believe it's intellect or capability. Look, one one that really resonates for me, and I think this is a challenge for the more traditional view of boards, which is, you know, you do it later in your career, you're well-established, you're probably, you know, into 50s and beyond, and that's the kind of profile of what it needs to look like. But I would ask the question, how many people in that profile really understand cyber risk, really mm. understand IT, really understand customer engagement enabled by IT, uh, back office operations enabled by IT, et cetera? So, I definitely think there's a lens there where you can open a conversation which says, have we got the full complement of skills and capabilities that we need at the board table for where our organization's going? And that maybe then opens the door. But it's, it's a hard one. You know, um, it's the ceiling, right? When you have a, a powerful group that is of a particular culture, style, demographic, um, mm. it's, it's hard to get pull through.
0: I'm going to put a um a shout out to, and I'll make sure I'll put a link to this in the show notes. I listened to a podcast recently, Julia Gillard's podcast, a podcast of one's own, and she interviewed, and I'm probably pronouncing this badly, Tamash Chamaro Pramusic, who has written a book called, Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders, brackets, and How to Fix It? And in the podcast, he talked exactly about the merit argument and when people say, but what about merit? And his response is, yes. Can we use merit, please? That would be fantastic if we used merit because, as you say, plenty of the studies show uh, that having that gender equality and having women exactly meets merit, depending on how merit is defined within, you know, systemic unconscious bias. So I'll make sure I put a link to that particular podcast, but also to that book in the show notes. Uh, I thought it was also worth noting that he is the only male she has had on her podcast and it's because she read the book and thought it was so well well worth sharing. So there's some tips there for you as well. So there's some tips in that for you, Karen. Women on boards did a a review
1: of board recruitment, and obviously it was very skewed, predominantly female respondents, because it was their yeah, membership base. But one of their observations that really resonated with me is that in board recruitment, there's a real tendency to do a like-for-like. So, you know, we had a really good yeah. um, accountant with this set of skills on our board. So when, and they're at ten, you know, they're at the end of tenure, they're leaving. So we have to let them go. So when we go out to recruit, we're going to look for someone who looks exactly yeah. like that. Yes. Yeah. Um, and yeah. that's why I think it's so important to recalibrate your skills matrix for where you are today as an organisation and where you're going with your new strategy and try and use that to influence the discussion about who yeah. you're recruiting for.
0: Susan Slattery asks, how can a board effectively measure the implementation of a new strategy in the organisation and the temperature of the staff without delving into operations? What are your tips there?
1: Yeah, there's, a, there's a an open hand out <laughs> to mention to that. I think I'm a big fan of 360 anonymous surveys to really see what's going on. If your organisation uses, you know, net promoter score or something to track staff, as a board, you want to ask to see not just the stats, but you want to have access to the comments as well because they're often sometimes very insightful. Now, I think board members having the opportunity to engage with staff, very clearly mm. not in a management space, but at events and walking into shops or depending on the nature of the business. And then the other is the reporting Ideally, you know, really good quality reporting is coming from the lower levels and and rolling up so that Mm. um, there's sort of consistent information being used to draw the strategic so what and the insights that then let us make decisions about what's the right way to govern.
0: Um, Ingrid asks, what sort of research is recommended in the pre-strategy development stage?
1: Look, the bulk of the research I would say sits in that first phase where you're looking at the internal and external context. Yeah. Depending on how you've done the strategy in the past, and again, you know whether you have a chief strategy officer and a strategy team, or you know a group that's regularly managing strategic business planning. If you don't, and it's a kind of a new setup, then you do want to spend a bit of time looking at what happened previously, thinking about the resourcing you're going to need, and again, it's thinking about the culture of your organisation. If you're a very consensus-driven organisation, and you're going to need a lot of workshops and consultations throughout your process, and lots of kind of team, then you really need to think about the resourcing requirements of that and shaping some sort of document for leadership and the board to discuss, to commit to that level of investment. Yeah. Um, and you may shape up a few scenarios. You might shape up, you know, a faster scenario, a longer scenario, the pros and cons of quicker but less consultation versus more drawn out, et cetera. So it's kind of, it's more around figuring out the, the shaping of the process. And you may also start to draft up some initial thoughts around what some of the big questions are as yeah. an input um, to help guide some of the analysis that may happen, um, but accepting that new and other ones will come up during the process as
0: well. Right. Okay. Uh, final two questions. Uh, Fiona asks, what if half the board likes the strategy and the other half don't? How do you navigate through that?
1: Uh, it depends what stage you are in your strategic planning process. But for me, if you got to a 50, 50 type scenario, I would say involve them more. Engage them more. Because you do expect to have a degree of dissent in different opinions, and that's great because that's the diversity you want to bring to the conversation. But if it's quite conflicted and, you know, it's sort of evenly spread, it's not just one person or two people that have a different view, then you need to do more stakeholder work. And you need to try and figure out what is that point of disagreement. Is it the overall strategic direction or is it a particular component of it? Is it because some of them feel the process hasn't adequately looked at, you know, information from a particular stakeholder group or whatever else. So do a bit of debugging um, and then think about what you can do to bring them on the journey more, give them more opportunity to discuss, debate and, and try and land it.
0: Which probably answers the final question that we have here as well. What if the strategy falls flat and doesn't capture the passion or it's not well received by stakeholders? Probably some of what you said is really relevant there as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I think in a scenario like that, if, if it's not resonating with stakeholders, then you might have undercooked your um, your kind of external analysis at mm-hmm. the start, or if it's internal stakeholder internal analysis, and you may have missed a bit of a trick. So in that case, I would consider as much as you can with possibly limited resources and time constraints, going back out to better understand why it's not resonating and think about what can change. Although I will shout out to... Um, Clayton Christensen and the Innovator's Dilemma, um, to praise a whole book. He, he essentially initially looked at the floppy disk market and this view that, you know, the incumbents had happy customers, happy suppliers, business was booming, everything was great, and this huge disruption just kind of came from behind that they didn't see coming. So, you know, when you're engaging with your stakeholders and they're unhappy, you have to also look at it in the context of what you're trying to do and are you trying to be a, a market disruptor or then that might be a slightly different
0: scenario. And as you'd said much earlier, you can't keep everyone happy all of the time. So as long as the board, I would say, as long as the board's aware of what stakeholder views are and have strategically made that decision, just because people are unhappy doesn't make it the wrong decision, as long as you're aware of that and taking all of that into account. Fabulous. Morgana, that brings us to the end of our listener questions or participant questions at the breakfast from last week. There is a goldmine of information in there for people in developing strategy. Um, So, thank you for sharing your thoughts last week around developing strategy and bringing it together and then continuing the conversation this week with all of that Q&A. It's been absolutely fabulous. So, thank you for being with us uh, on the Take On Board podcast today.
1: Thank you, Helia, and I love, I love what you do. So thank you for all your
0: efforts to keep women connected and to share all these great insights from all your different speakers. Hi there, it's Helia. That's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together, so it's great to be able to share these conversations that I'm having with this amazing group of women with you. Now, can I ask a favour? Could you share this podcast with someone you know? Perhaps you can share it with some of your board colleagues or someone else that you know that's interested in exploring all things boards and governance. With your help, we can grow the Take On Board community. Last but not least, if you want to continue the conversation, you can also join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group, where there's lots of great discussions, tips, tricks and resources being shared. I would love it if you can join in the conversation there. You can find it by searching Take On Board in Facebook. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another fabulous conversation.